Thank you for downloading Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Purdue's North America. This special series is a curated collection of premium Tisha B'Av content from the Pardes archives. We hope it brings additional meaning to these solemn days. Please be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Nine Days, Nine Podcasts. So after a long buildup of three weeks, it's here, Tisha B'Av. I started three weeks ago, then nine days ago, then the week on which it falls, which was kind of short this week, this year, um, all the while taking on more and more laws of mourning. And finally, we get to the day itself, the day that contains our collective memory of suffering, the combined traumas of the Jewish people throughout our history. Um, all, virtually all sources of joy are denied on this day. And in pop terms, what we would call it is the day, literally and figuratively, the day the music died. Um, and I want to get back to this theme in a serious way, um, that it's, there, there is something more to this, this idea of the music of our lives somehow fading and dying, at least temporarily. Um, those of you sitting in this Beit Midrash, I don't need to explain to you why Torah learning is in the list of forbidden activities. Uh, we know how much joy it brings us to, to learn Torah. Uh, and so there's a small list of exceptions to um, those passages, those, those Torah passages uh, that bring us joy. Um, and on that list is the book of Job, for obvious reasons, right? There's nothing joyous about the book of Job at all. Um, so first of all, I hope I'm going to say this at the outset. I hope you do not enjoy what is coming today. Um, do not enjoy this shiur. Um, and I also want to say something about the method that I am very fond of, which is viewing certain biblical passages in light of other biblical passages. So by extension, when we, we get in on the, uh, the exception of the book of Job, we're going to kind of sneak in the story of the Akedah on the coattails of the book of Job, because I believe that these two stories in very real ways are conversational partners. Um, and I'll just pause for a second to ask you what that might mean, the two stories that we look at in, the, in Tanakh are talking to each other. How do we know that those stories are doing that? I know I have the microphone, but you get to talk too. Yes. Similar terminology between the stories. What else? Themes. Okay, themes and language that are, sh that are basically the equivalent of arrows pointing us from one story to the other. We, as, as good, careful readers, are called upon to notice these similarities between the stories, to look at them and in light of one another and see what we might have to gain from viewing them that way. And I'm so intrigued by reading Tanakh in this manner, in terms of pairs, rather than simply looking at a story in, in, on its own. I'm so excited about that that I tend to do this with just about everything. Um, and one piece of it, um, and I liked it so much I wrote a book about it. Um, the sub I called it Subversive Sequels in the Bible, How Biblical Stories Mine and Undermine Each Other. And I want to just say a word about that, that the stories are drawn together based on similar language and themes, not only to mine one another, to expand, to interpret, to elucidate, but sometimes one story will borrow the language of another and the themes of another, not just to echo it and reinforce it, but to actually challenge its assumptions and in really wonderful cases to begin to gradually overturn its conclusions. Are you with me here? What I would like to do with you this morning is look at the two stories. One is the story of the Akedah and the other is the book of Job and see how those stories are going to play off of each other, both in a straightforward mining manner, how they echo one another, but also in this undermining manner. How does one play off of the other to actually challenge it and, and ultimately to question, to question its, 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 its conclusions? Any questions on that before we move forward? That's the, that's, that's the um, methodological backdrop to what we're going to be doing. All right, let's get to work. On your page, we're going to start with the Akedah. Um, and I'm going to assume that the Akedah is familiar to all in some way. Um, would you say that the, the Akedah is a story that has a happy ending? <laughs> Who says yes? 
Okay, why? Why does it have a happy ending? How do we know? What? Say again? Isaac wasn't killed. Okay, phew, that was close. Good. What else? He passes the test. God gives him a big pat on the back and a yashrikoach. Ata yadati ki elohimata. Now I know that you're God-fearing. Okay, whatever we want to make of that, did God not know before? That's for somebody else to discuss. But the, 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 God, the conclusion of it is that God says, now I really know this. You are God-fearing. You are unassailably God-fearing. And the other piece of it is God says, now those blessings that I've been talking about are, are, are an absolute absolute guarantee. Right? You are doubly blessed. Um, all, the, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. You will be blessed, blessed, blessed because you did this. Sounds like a wonderfully happy ending, except. Did you want to give the except or did you want? Except that it has a sad ending. Good. Because Sarah is the victim here. Yes, okay. Wonderful. Okay. Yes, of course. Yeah. Yes. They never see each other again while Avraham is alive. That is all true. Yes. Terrible. Terrible. Think about the, 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 the immediate moment of this thing, the kind of trauma that is inflicted on people who don't know that at the end God is going to say, hold it. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't mean it. Right? So talk about the temporary trauma and the lingering trauma of this story. It's hard to, it's hard to attach to that, uh, right? The tag of happy ending. It's all good. We're all fine now. Yes. Okay, by your parent, by your God, your, right? This is your standard of everything that's good and right in the world. God is the one. It's not just that a terrible thing happened. It's that a terrible thing happened at the command of the Lord. In the back? Yeah. Is gone. All gone. Yes. All right. Now, you just catapulted us over source number one. Uh, so let's back up now and see how the sources here are going to back up everything that you just said. I'm not going to, we're going to have time for some chavruta learning, but right now you have just, you've just made that unnecessary. Let's look at source number one. Uh, just the subtle hints in the way that the story is presented to us. Okay? At the beginning, God says to Abraham, source number one, Vayomer, kachna et bincha et yechidecha asher ahavta. And of course, everybody wants to know what's the problem with the way that God presents this. Oh, I thought you were talking about a different Yitzchak. Why do you have to have all these qualifiers? Your son, your only one whom you love, Yitzchak. Okay, we're not going to get into all of that. What I wanted to focus on here is simply the number of qualifiers that are given. Your son, your only one, the one you love. Right? Now... Then God says, Go to this place and bring him up as an offering. That's the command. Okay. As they start going, Avraham intuits, it seems, that there's something uh, very, very uh, lofty going on here, something exclusive even to him and Yitzchak. And so he sheds the people who, who don't belong there. Who are those people? Who doesn't get to go up? The Ne'arim, who are with them up until that point. And if you look just below what we, what we just read. Vayomer Avraham el Ne'arav, shivu lachem po im hachamor. You, Ne'arim, stay here with the donkey. Vani vahana'ar ne'elcha adko. And the lad, right? There are these kind of Ne'arim, and there's this kind of Na'ar. This Na'ar, this, this son of mine, Yitzchak, he gets to go with me, but the other Ne'arim don't get to go. And there's a, there's a hint here that's, that's bordering on, on the comic, um, which is, seems to be perhaps some kind of justification as to why those, those Ne'arim don't get to go. They're, they seem to be put into a category with what? The donkey, right? You and the donkey don't get to come. This boy, though, does get to come. Why are, the, why, why are these Ne'arim put into the category of the donkey? I know it's not very flattering. Yes? Well, 
Exactly. And they are, in some sense, and there are midrashim that pick up on this, right? You, you see something that they can't see. You live on a spiritual plane that they cannot inhabit. And so, and, in, and even etymologically, right, to take the word chamor, what word do we see in there, perhaps? Chomer, something that's weighed down by its material, right, its materiality. The material things don't get to go to the spiritual place. You stay here. You, you material lads stay with the material beast and the boy this boy and i are going to go to god's god's place so that's that seems to be so far at the beginning um the, it's clear to us that abraham is fiercely connected to yitzhak they are 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 linked by some kind of vision that the others don't have but now let's look and and this continues in the next source uh abraham still on page 1 of the sources in the middle uh, he takes the 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 the, uh, the wood, vayasem al Yitzchak beno. He places it on Yitzchak. Vayikach biyado et ha'esh ve'et ha'ma'achelet. Takes the firestone and the knife. Vayelchu shnehem yachdav. They went off together. What's the problem here? Vayelchu shnehem yachdav. They both went off together. Okay. First of all, we might say, well, thank you for that information. We we could count to two. Right? Why do we need that piece of information? They went off together. The two of them went off together. Right? We know that. What's, why do you think the text goes out of its way to add this? Right? It seems to be pointing to something more than just their physical motion, but there's some kind of, of connection between these two. And Rashi and the Midrashim all talk about this, that there is a, a, a unity of purpose here where Avraham, who knows the terrible thing that he's about to do, and Yitzhak, who at this point according to many, is still oblivious to it. They both, Avraham, it's extolling Avraham, who, who's going as willingly as Yitzchak, who doesn't even know what's happening. Then, afterwards, Yitzchak finally starts getting a little uncomfortable. He asks his father, what's going on here? This, something's missing here. Where's the, where's the animal, dad? And his father gives him an answer that is, we're not going to talk about, but is at best, difficult to understand. At worst, seems to intimate to Yitzhak that maybe we don't need another offering because we've got it. And then at the end of that little piece, again, the text tells us, The two of them went together. Why do you think the text, if the first time it was redundant, now it's, well, here's a redundant term, super redundant. Um, why do we have it now? They went off together. Okay, and there again, right, so now you might say if the first yachdav is to tell you how great Avraham is, to go as willingly as Yitzchak goes, now perhaps this, this, this turns it around and says now let's take a moment to, to appreciate Yitzchak, who now that he on some level understands what, what's at stake literally for him, uh, he is going as willingly as his father who is going to at least physically survive this ordeal. So the two of them are so amazingly in sync here in their, in their willingness to fulfill this horrific divine command that the text goes out of its way to repeat again and again this, this notion of togetherness. Okay, that's so far. That's the beginning of the story. Now what starts happening, if you'll, start, if you'll notice, just in the source below this, still in chapter 22, same story, uh, things little there are subtle changes in the way that the text presents this relationship. The bottom of the page, just at the moment where Avraham is standing over Yitzchak with this flesh-eating knife about to bring it down on his son, and the and the angel calls out from heaven, Vayomer Avraham, Avraham, Vayomer Hineni, right? This Hineni echoes the original Hineni, I'm here, whatever it is. The first time the whatever it is was go sacrifice your son. This time the Hineni it happily is in response to don't sacrifice your son. Don't do anything to him. What happened? Okay, now here's the Yashra Koach. Now I know that you are God-fearing. You have not withheld your son, your only one, from me. What's the subtle shift that has taken place from the beginning of the chapter? Yes. Wait, wait, with the question. Let's first, what's, yeah. Okay, first of all, you're, you're, you're combining two things. At the, but the first level is what's missing? 
God defines Yitzchak. He characterizes Yitzchak as your son, your only son, whom you love. When God withdraws the decree, God simply refers to Yitzchak as Bincha et Yechidcha, your son, your only one. What happened to the one you love? It's gone. All right, now you're taking it to the next level and you're saying, oh, well, the ahava, the love has been removed and it's been replaced with this fear. Perhaps, perhaps. But for our purposes, I want to simply note that the love has gone somewhere and we're not sure where. Making matters worse, if you look at the top of the next page of your sources, Vayashov Avraham el Ne'arav, now Avraham returns to Ne'arav, who are these Ne'arim? They're the ones who stayed behind with the donkey. Now he returns to them. And they, right, the teams have shifted completely. This, this fierce togetherness that we had with, with, between Avraham and Yitzchak that, was, that, was go, that, went, that was mutual, that went in two, di- two directions, is now it's seemingly replaced with a different kind of togetherness where Yitzchak is not the son anymore, at least not called the son whom Abraham loves. Not only that, Yitzchak seems to be absent completely, and his place is, 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 he is replaced by these Ne'arim who had no place with Abraham and Yitzchak on that mountain. Now the Yachdav, the togetherness, is Abraham and those Ne'arim, those, those, those donkey-connected boys. And then um, they go to Beersheva, Vayeshev Avraham Beersheva, the end of the story. He goes off and stays in Beersheva. Okay, I, the reason, we went through this basically to confirm everything that was said here before we looked at this. And here I think is some liter- strong literary support to, to what, what many of you right here in this room today said. Right? Something terrible happened on a personal level at the, at the end of this story. Right, so we might say, getting back to the question of whether or not there's a happy ending to the Akedah, I, I suppose, after reading it carefully, the answer is yes and no. Right? Yes, on a covenantal level, it's, it's a happy ending. God says, well done, Avraham. I'm now elevating you to the level of God-fearing. I am, I am t- the things that I promised you before are now offered to you on the, on the level of, of solemn oath, Right, be nishbati. I swear, says God, that all those blessings that I offered you before are now are not there permanently. That's all. That's all good. But at what personal cost? And it seems, and those of you who you, you notice this, and Sarah, I did, we're not we're not we don't unfortunately can't go into that. But but at, what, at the end of this story, what we find is that Abraham's personal life seems to be completely shattered. That the last, the, aside from the temporary trauma of thinking. Right, Avraham thinking he has to sac- slaughter his son, and Yitzchak thinking that he is going to be slaughtered. Aside from that, we have lingering trauma, lasting damage, a permanent split. There is no further, as somebody no- said before, no further communication between the father and the son, between Avraham and Sarah. And here, kind of questioning the covenantal beauty of this, not between Avraham and God either. But that's for another time. Um, so, yes, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay, here, is, uh, here I'm going to say something that I think I'm going to be repeating a lot within the next hour. That is beyond the scope of t- this morning's conversation. Um, right. I, I, have, I have no... Um, there is, uh, do not be misled into thinking I am going to solve the Akedah for you. I have no intention of doing it, and the reason I have no intention of doing that is because I couldn't if I tried. I don't understand the story, and I will never understand the story. Um, however, I hope that by comparing it to the book of Job, we will get some additional layer of understanding. That's the best I can do here. I want to just, I want to approach the story of the Akedah from one very very specific lens, and that is the lens of, and this is what is appropriate for today, tzaddik viralo, right? People who don't deserve unspeakable suffering, going through unspeakable suffering, 
And here, to get to the point that was raised over here before, it's not just unspeakable suffering. It's unspeakable suffering at the direct behest of the Lord. God has inflicted the suffering. Okay, now this, right, in our discussion, often when we talk about the, the question of bad things happening to good people, that's, that's part of the question. Has God caused this? And we can't prove it. Um, some people think more, some people think less. But the, this story posits the question in the form of God has ordered it. Yes, God also rescinds it, but, but, but there's damage. We're going to go from here to the book of Job where the damage is, is increased exponentially and the direct finger of God is even more direct. Okay, that, that's, that's where we're going to take this story. In short, we're going to make things a whole lot worse before we make them at all better. Yes. Yes. Great entry into the book of Job. Yes. Okay. I don't agree with that. Uh, it's good. Um, right. Right. Um, well, you will have some allies in the book of Job. Not everybody, but some people. Okay? In Job. Yes. Okay. Let's, let's get going here. Um, I want to just say that we were left, after the story of the Akedah, we're left with lots and lots of open questions, most of which we will not address um, or begin to answer. But I want to I just focus on a couple of questions, and I would call them what-if questions. First of all, what if, actual, if, if there wasn't that last-second reprieve? If God, the, the angel doesn't come out at the last second and say, halt, don't do it, don't actually kill the child, um, would God still expect the God-fearing character, the Yurei Elohim, to silently submit to the command. And remember one of the most important features, one of the outstanding features of the story of the Akedah, one of the most puzzling features of it. What does Abraham say to God when God says, kill your son? Nothing. The only words that Abraham speaks in the Akedah are to Yitzchak. Not one word of question or protest directed to God. What do we have in, in place of that? We have actions, right? He, he saddles his donkey. He collects the firewood. He, he, he moves. He moves in, in, in rapid pace to, get to, to do what God said. Um, so he, he accedes to it. He does everything that God tells him. And we don't know if that, if that extreme activity is supposed to signal us his enthusiasm for it or the opposite. Maybe he's just trying to cover up his thoughts by, by, by doing things. We don't know. We're left to figure that out for ourselves. But we, what we don't have, what's missing here are the words. So first of all, I want to know, is that the model that, that, that adds up to being a Yurei Elohim? Do you have to be quiet and just do what God says? And if there would be an outcry, if that, those words would come, first of all, what would they look like? And if they came in, in all their glory, would that, that, that servant of God still be considered Yurei Elohim? Could that, could that verbose servant of God, still be God's faithful servant? Can, can that person be, as Kierkegaard famously called Abraham, the, the knight of faith? Is silence a requirement for that status? What, what would God's response be to an outcry? Would, would God allow it? Would God still hold up that person as a paragon of faith? Would God explain why these terrible things happen to people who don't deserve terrible things? Would God even acknowledge human suffering? Okay, that's a lot of questions. Let's start looking at some answers. And, and, and the text itself gives us a good hint as to where we need to look. Because in source number two, when I said that the, we saw the end of the story of the Akedah, I was misleading you. The real ending to the story of the Akedah is in this strange epilogue to the book. And as anticlimaxes go, this should be at the top of the list of all-time anticlimaxes, right? Abraham is standing there with a flesh-eating knife ready to slaughter his son. The angel comes out and says, no, 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 don't do it. He doesn't do it. We're all relieved. And then, Vayihi devarim after these things, Vayugad Avraham Lemor, Avraham is told, Hine Yalda Milka Gamhi Banim Lenachor Achicha. You have, you are now the proud 
great uncle to a whole bunch of kids, and here are their names. That's the end of the Akedah. And then we get a list of names. Et Utz Bechoro, ve'et Buz Achi, ve'et Kimuel Avi Aram, ve'et Kesed. Some of the names, Utz, Buz, Kesed. Okay, what I want to say to you is this. These names are, are significant. And these names are going to provide a crucial link between this story of the Akedah and the book of Job. And right, what are the first words of the book of Job? Ish right? You can look at source number three. Ish Be'eretz Utz, Iov Shimo. One of the characters at the end of the Akedah, Utz, is going to, going to be the name of the land where, uh, from where um, Eov hails. Utz. Booz is going to come back. Kesed. We're going to have the, the marauding Kasdim. We're going to have lots more. We're going to see in a moment. Um, well, what else? There are two biblical characters who refer to themselves as Afar Va'efer, dust and ashes. Guess who they are? Guess, wild guess. One is Avraham and the other is, is Eov. Afar va'efer, right? Not a, not a standard a standard characterization. Both of them are called this. Um, Yirei Elohim, they're both God-fearing. Okay, that's all backdrop. What I want to ask you to do now, since we are in fact sitting in a Beit Midrash, is to look at source number three. Read it among yourselves. Please do make some noise. And I want you to spend about five to six minutes, asking yourselves, well, basically drawing a character sketch of this person, Job. How is he like and how is he unlike Avraham, in your opinion, based on what we've just seen? Okay? Again, character sketch of Job based on Job 1. How is he like Avraham? How is he unlike Avraham? Please get to work and do make noise. I know you're feeling a little weak right now. You haven't had your coffee, but let's try to overcompensate. Okay, with apologies, we really could and probably should do this all day. Um, but let's, let's, let's see what we've, what we've gleaned here. Um, let's start at the beginning. How is, how is from, the, from the opening of this chapter, how is Job like Avraham? Is he like Abraham? Yeah. Good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay, I'm going to repeat that. It was definitely worth repeating. Both Abraham and Eov are called Yireh Elohim, God-fearing, but I think significantly, Abraham builds up to it. It's only at the end of his career at the Akedah that God calls, calls him Yireh Elohim, whereas Job has this accolade at the very beginning. We're just meeting him, and he's already Yireh Elohim. Okay? God-fearing at the end, God-fearing at the beginning. So he is both like and unlike Abraham. What else? Yeah. Yes. He starts at the top. And let's try to unpack that a little bit. Let's, what, what do we see? How top is he? Good. Good. He seems to have everything here. Um, and in these descriptions, some of the descriptions, did anything else remind you of Abraham in the description of Job? Lots of material possessions. Um, Job, it seems, has, is Abraham, I think what you're getting at, Abraham plus. Um, he's Abraham in that he has a lot of stuff. But he's got more than a lot of stuff. And notice, very, I think one really important term here is va'avuda raba. Um, how's that translated? I don't know. Um, lots of, it's, I, 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 there must be a more elegant word than stuff. But he's got a lot of stuff. Possessions, that's better. Um, there is one of, the, one of the forefathers who is described in this way, who has avuda raba. Anybody? Chances in one and three that you'll get it. Yitzchak. Yitzchak has avuda raba. Who is called Tam, by the way, of the Avot? Yaakov, ish Tam, Yoshev, Halim. It seems that Avraham has a bit of the Tam. What is he? God says, heye Tamim. Right? Be whole before me. It seems that Avraham, that Eov here is the Avraham figure, but he gets the Avraham 
blessings, it seems, before he, he even does anything. And in addition to that, he seems to be a bit of a composite of, of all of the all of the forefathers. He's got a piece of the best of Yitzchak, a piece perhaps of the best of Yaakov, best of Abraham. It's all there at the very beginning. Um, I've seen some some suggestions made that this B'nai Kedem, he is greater than all of the B'nai Kedem. How would we translate that? I don't know. That was not intentional. That that is author's error. Uh, no, sorry. Okay, I'm sorry about that. I didn't. I, I guess I didn't. Didn't translate that on the page. That was, in, in, it's included with the dot, dot, dots. Sorry. Apologies. Um, wait, one second. I just want to say on that, B'nai Kedem, who is this term used for to extol? Hold on. Uh, went, to B'nai, went to Kedem. Kedem is sometimes a place where the reject people go. Uh, but but uh, Shlomo, King Solomon, is, is, that's not here, it's not on your page, but he is wiser than all of the B'nai Kedem. Maybe he's got wisdom too. Maybe there's a hint here. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. But at least at the beginning, we might have hints of something missing, but we also have hints of something really exceptional, maybe even too good to be true, maybe, um, in addition to all those things that he's got, that Avraham had and that the other Avot had, he's got one thing that they did not have. What's that? Harmony. Ten children. Who's got this? Ten children who, have, who make a party together every day? That's what he's got. Yeah. What? Sarmera. Go ahead. No. No. I don't know. It seems to be even more. Sar Meira. Yeah? Yeah. Yes. Completion. Perfection. Everywhere you look, the math makes the point. Every, the, cam, the cattle and the people. All, everything adds up to ten. Right? Five thousands of this and five thousand of that. Seven of these, three of those. Everywhere you look, it's, it's tens. This is, this is just beyond, beyond perfect, everything that we see here, okay? Uh, so he, if he has more than Abraham at the beginning, when things start going sour, they are, I would say, well, worse than what we see with Abraham. How is that? Okay, where Abraham has one, one child threatened with death at the behest of God, Eov has ten children who are not only threatened with death, they are actually killed at the behest of God. This story is much worse, isn't it? Yeah. Um, actually, before... Yes. So not worse? But they die. Okay. So you can argue, maybe you can equate the number 10 with the number 1, but the actual death with the threatened death, that's a little bit of a hard sell. Right? There's, no, there's no angel that comes out of the sky at this moment and says, Satan, go away. We're, we're not going through with this, with this exercise. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And even that the language, kachna, right? God is, 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 is requesting, perhaps. There's something, there's something a little more inclusive there, whereas here, the conversation is entirely between God and Satan. And, and Eov, the only information he gets is what's, coming, what's raining down on him and his, and his household. Yeah. Ah, okay. So you're saying that in some ways the Akedah is worse because he is ordered to, to ex- literally execute the order. Um, whereas here, he's standing by as things are happening around him. So maybe it's worse and it's not worse. Okay, yeah. They're both tested. Yes, they are. We know, the reader knows in both stories that there's some kind of a test going on, but the character doesn't know. So that, that gets back to the, the, the point that was raised here earlier about the, the, the temporary trauma where even if the story ends, out, ends up okay, you can't take away from what that, those characters are experiencing because they don't know that it's going to be okay. They're being tested, but they're, they're left out of that conversation, and that's, that's hard, hard, to, hard to even imagine. Yes? Okay. I, I'm going to leave this as an open question, which is worse, but I, I, I do want to say that in some ways, let me, let me just posit the following. 
On one level, let's say Job has more than Avraham, right? To begin the way that, that he's presented. On some very real level, he loses more than Avraham loses. And, and the part that I, I want to really focus on is, is Job's reaction. Okay, what we've had up until now is something parallel. But what does Job do when he loses everything? Um, and notice this, we have to back up to two, to two things. First of all, two, an important term in this book is this word. If for nothing else, I made them schlep this blackboard, this whiteboard in here for, so that I could write those two, th- those two letters on this board. Tam, right? That word is going to be a, a really important recurring term in this book. And this term is going to be equated with this word, this, ta- this term, yirat Elohim. Yirah and, and, and tam are somehow connected. We'll see that soon. Um, and the big question that is looming over this book, the one that is raised by Satan and that God agrees to entertain, is will Job hold on to this status as tam, or will he lose it? Will he give it up? Will he forfeit it by, by doing what? By doing what? By doing what? Cursing God, and here, okay, as long as we have the board, let's use it even more. This term, I would say, is pretty important too. Remember in the Akedah, Levarech, to bless, that is a very straightforward thing. Avraham does what God wants him to do, and God says, Barech avarechacha, you are blessed completely and forever. Here, Satan makes cynical use of this term, and what does he say? Yes, you have blessed him. You have already blessed him. And that's also another little change here, that he's already got all the blessings a person could have at the beginning. And Satan says, well, that is actually based on Job's context. Of course he blesses you. Why does he bless you? What does he have to curse you about? Everything is going his way. But if you start taking those things away from him, he will bless you, but this way. Okay, for those of you who can't see the board at this moment, I just put quotation marks around the word barech, which turns it into a euphemism for the opposite of blessing, blaspheming. And that is the essence of, of, the, of the Satan's argument. If you take away the context of bracha from, from Job, Job will stop blessing you in that straightforward way. He will bless you in that euphemistic opposite way. He will curse you. His blessing toward you, your blessing to him is, is clear and wonderful, but Job's blessing to you, says Satan, is context-based. And what's beautiful here, but we don't have time to go into, is, the, is how the form and the substance are, are unified here, where we have this alternating use of the word levarech in this first chapter of the first two chapters of the book of Job, meaning bless, curse, bless, cursed. And the only way we know which is which is what? Context. So in a sense, we are looking at the word barech in, in context, which is what Satan wants God to do. Look at that blessing in context. Um, and and he'll, he'll fail if you take the context of, of endless good away from him. He's going to say bad things. What ends up happening after the first round of disasters, right? The t- just getting back to, to source number three, the first block of text here, after everything is destroyed but his children are still alive, um, no, I'm sorry, that's wrong. Um, after the ch- everybody dies, right? I, I want to get back to this. Job starts with more. He loses more. Um, and when he loses it, he, when, the, when, when he's faced with this terrible situation of terrible things happening to an undeserving person, I would say he is more verbal in his response, right? He steps up and speaks in a way that Abraham never did. What does he say? Right? Sidu kadin. God is just. Hashem natan v'ashem lakach. Right? We say this to this very day when death occurs. Yehi shem Hashem mevorach. Mevorach, no no quotation marks. God is blessed. That's it. Satan is wrong. And then it says, Bechozot lo chata iov. Job did not sin. V'lo natan tifla lelohim. Okay. Now, that is the first chapter of the book of Job, and now I think we better start moving a little faster. So, sorry? 
Tifla, not tifila. Tifla means a uh, complaint, reproach. Okay, let's let's go on. And I'm sorry now I'm going to have to entertain fewer questions so that we can actually get through this. Um, in source number four, what we see is that, that <clears throat> we would hope that this would put the whole question to rest, um, which is that Job has proven that he is going to, he is never going to blaspheme, no matter what happens. But Satan is not happy with this. Um, and God, it seems, is poking at Satan. I, from here, we, we, we learn, al-tiftach per la Satan. Here we have God literally opening up a mouth to the Satan and saying, look, look how good Eov still is. Ishtam, v'yashar, v'yre Elohim, v'sar me'ra. All those things we saw already at the beginning of the book. Ve'odenu machazik bitumato. This is in source number four. He is still Tam. And you made me attack him for nothing? And now the Satan, Satan makes what we could argue is the most cynical uh, comment of all. He says, God, you haven't actually done anything to him yet. Why is that? You haven't touched his own skin. Okay. I, 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 can't, I can't let this go without comment. I have to say that, um, yes, it's cynical, but I believe there's a really, really deep and troubling truth in this. Um, and, and I can tell you personally, as somebody who's had, t- had experiences um, tending to people with terrible illnesses, there is simply no comparison to be made between those of us who suffer as caregivers and those of us who suffer as actually having that that wound inflicted on our own on our own flesh. Right? The people who have it in their flesh don't get to go home at night. Um, it's 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 a terrible thing. I would say on a lighter level, right? Uh, it always strikes me when I listen to when I watch the news in Israel, and the only thing that warrants uh, special um, uh, what do you call it when you uh, sponsorship sponsorship is what in the news what gets sponsorship the weather, the weather right what, now why is that why do why do all these firms invest their money in the weather report and not in well we might be attacked with a nuclear bomb from Iran and we've got what's going on in Aza and all these things that we care about deeply what do we really care about what what do those people what can they bank on we want to know literally how is our flesh going to feel tomorrow all right. Okay. It's not more complicated than that. Sorry. I'm, okay. Anyway, so Satan is 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 presenting that that eternal human truth, and in some sense, God accepts it. God says, "Yeah, you know what? God should say to Satan, go away. I did everything I could possibly do to him, and he's still he's still my servant.' But God says, "You know what? You're right. I haven't done everything. I'm going to now attack his flesh, and now he's struck with these terrible boils from head to toe, and he's scratching himself with a piece of clay, and he's absolutely miserable." And at the end of this piece, what we have Job saying. Oh, here, still in source number four. Despite all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. What has changed from the first, the first round of disasters? Okay, the first time it simply said, period. He did not sin. Here, by adding the word with his lips, what might we infer? Well, maybe maybe not with his lips. And there are midrashim and, and commentators who all point this out, right? He's not sinning with his lips, but he is starting to sin in his mind, in his heart. Something is beginning to perhaps bend. Okay, now he doesn't break, but maybe he's starting to bend. And here, after this, we have acharechen patach iov et pihu, and we're holding our breath. Uh-oh, now is it going to happen? He opens his mouth. Vayikalel, no more euphemism, no more barech, no more decide on the basis of the context. Vayikalel is unambiguous. He's going to curse. Is he going to curse God? No, vayikalel et yomo. He curses, he turns it inward. He curses himself the day that he was born. All right, so in one sense, we have... We have the, the defeat of Satan, who says that Job is going to blaspheme. But on the other side of this, we have he is moving past. He's bursting out of the model of Abraham. And he is not going to be this silent knight of faith. He is going to be a very, very verbal servant. And we'll see whether or not that verbal action on his part is going to allow him to retain this. Will he hold on to this and to this throughout the book? Okay.
Now we've got to start moving really quickly through the book of Job, source number five. Okay, let me ask you this. In source number five, here is Job speaking to the, to, to in, in one of the many dialogues that goes on in this book, and he, he cries out in source five in, in, verse, in, in chapter 19 of Job, Hen etzak chamas velo e'aneh. These words are very evocative uh, to, the, to the reader of the Bible, right? Hamas, he cries. Uh, what's Hamas? Violence. Ein mishpat, there's no justice. Okay, let's think for a moment in terms of the book of Genesis, for instance. Where have we seen these words? Okay, in the story of the flood, Hamas is what the people are doing, and that's what seals their fate. And Ein Mishpat, what's the society in the book of Genesis that has is defined? Sodom. But here is Job using these terms, not about the populace, but about... Who is he talking about here? Talking about God. God. You, God, are on the side of the Hamas people and on the side of the Ein Mishpat people. You are the bad people in the flood, and you are the bad people in Sodom. Right? And we read this, and we gasp at the, at the gall of Job to say these things. And he goes on, and this is not on your page because I had to limit what I was putting on your page, and the book of Job is very, very long. But just as an example of some of the things that Job is going to say in the 31st chapter, he's going to say the following. He says, I am just. And this gets back to your question. He says, I am just. I have done everything right. Did I deny the poor their needs or let a widow pine away? I never saw an unclad wretch, a needy man without clothing whose loins did not bless me, as he warmed himself with the shearings of my sheep. No sojourner spent the night in the open. I opened my doors to the road. Who does that sound like? Avraham. I did everything right. Okay, now there are, you know that there are, there, are, uh, there are opinions in the Gemara that say Eov never existed as an actual person. And I think the best support for this is that there could be, actually be a character who can stand up with a complete authority and say, I never did anything wrong. Right? Nobody can do that. So he creates a character who's, who, who can make that claim, and that's Job. Right? God doesn't say, no, that's, that's a lie. He says, I'm perfect. And, and I don't deserve this. Now that is a distinctly anti-Abrahamic position to take. I don't deserve this. I cry foul. Let's contrast that to what the friends of Job, sorry, in Sodom. You're right. I should, I should, thank you. Not Abraham in Sodom. And that is a discussion for next year, which is let's take, a, let's compare Abraham in Sodom with Abraham in the Akedah. Can we, can we, somehow reconcile these two characters. You're absolutely right that Abraham and Sodom is the anti-Abraham at the Akedah, Abraham. And this, what, the con- comparison that we're making is Abraham at the Akedah and Job in Job. Okay. The friends. The friends are God's apologists. And if you look in source number six, what is the essence of the argument that they're going to make? Um, and again, I had to pare this down and down and down. But here, Hallo yiratecha Kislatecha. Is not your fear of God your confidence? Yiratcha, your yira. If you're really yare, if you're really God-fearing, you sh- that should build you up. You should know that everything's going to be okay. Tikvatcha vetom dirachecha. Right? Your blamelessness, your hope. And here in the book of Job, we have a parallel overtly made between these two words, tam and yare, fearing and perfect. If you want to claim to be both, you have to understand that there's no, it is impossible that you are as good as you say you are. And then he goes on to say, um, where have, what, think now, what innocent man ever perished? Where have the upright been destroyed? These are rhetorical questions. What is, what is the essence of the, of the argument of the friends here? What's the essence of the argument? There is no such thing as tzaddik veralo. There is no such thing. There is tzaddik vitovlo. If you're a tzaddik, good things will happen to you. And if bad things are happening to you, that is by its definition proof that what? You're not, you're not perfect. You're not a, you're not a tzaddik. 
because the only perfect being is God. God is so much more powerful, and they go on to talk about the, the overwhelming might of God. God's word is justice, and you will never understand it. It's so much greater than you that just be quiet and walk away. Understand that you can't possibly, you're in, in your equation, you come out okay, but God has a better equation, a bigger equation, and you're out. Okay, that's the friends. The question here, and I want to start moving to... Exactly. Yes. It's your fault. That, that's the underlying, right? You're not a tzaddik. Simply, simply said, you, 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 your, your posing of the question is, is faulty. Okay. Where's God in all this story? Okay. Where, where is God? Where is God? Where is God? In source number seven, we have God coming out from in a tempest. And here... Let me, let me give you, take, take a minute and a half, please, and look at source number seven, the last piece of Chavruta for today. Source number seven, I'm going to ask you to look at God's remarks and at Job's response. And in your opinion, based on these sources, whose view is upheld, that of Job or that of Job's friends? Source number seven, a minute and a half, please get going. Okay, sadly, those were your 90 seconds. Okay, God, where does God come out on this question? Who's right? Who's right? Say, the friends. The friends, not the friends. Hold it, no, I've said based on, only on source number seven. No fear. Only what you just saw, yeah. Okay. They sound very much like the friends, right? I am justice. I am bigger than you are. I am God, and you're not, basically. Um, the, 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 the audio visuals support this. Where does God appear from? <sighs> right? God creates the, 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 the background of the storm, and God says, can you do this? When you can do this, come talk to me. Right? This is, this is God basically putting Job in his place. You are tiny. And Job is cowed and says, And here, I want to get to this root. What does this root word mean in this context? What? What? No, it doesn't mean comfort. Not in this, not in this context. Retract. I, re- I recant. I, I take it back, he says. We get a feeling that he is moving back toward a, a, an earlier mode of, of behavior before he started talking. Um, and here, just to give you, fill out some of the things that he says there, Job is going to say, I know that you can do everything, that nothing you propose is impossible for you. Indeed, I spoke without understanding of things beyond me. This is in 40, chapter 42 of Job. It's not on your page. Be, things beyond me which I did not know. Therefore, I recant and relent, being nothing but dust and ashes, afar va'efer. Okay? Comparing this story to the Akedah seems to reinforce and encourage this notion of the silent night of faith in response to God's overwhelming power and might. And I want to just now move toward conclusion by telling you, just sharing some of my thoughts on all this. First of all, um, I would say that this mode of response to incomprehensible suffering is presented eloquently in a book by uh, Professor James Kugel that is called In the Valley of the Shadow. Um, and in this book, he describes the human tendency to feel, a, and he says, it's, which is basically an illusion, that we walk through life kind of marching to, a, to a, a perceived musical beat. We hear it in the background, and it gives us this false sense of control and security. Things are in control. I hear the beat. I keep on going, right? But at times, the illusion is pierced, sometimes by a trauma, a catastrophe, and we're forced to recognize our true dimensions in life in relation to God and the universe. And at these moments, we're, we're confronted with a kind of primal sense of God's mysterious, all-powerful, unknowable force and our own insignificance in the face of that. And the word that he uses, he chooses a wonderful word to describe that feeling of insignificance. He calls it starkness, starkness. 
Um, and he himself, he, he's in a very personal way in this book, talks about how he reacted when he, he was faced with a terrible life-threatening disease. Thank God he's fine, but he didn't know it then. And he says the following. Here's a quote from, from Kugel. He says, after the initial shock, he says, the main change in my state of mind was that I can't think of a better way to put it. The background music suddenly stopped. And this is getting back to the day the music died. It had always been there, the music of daily life that's constantly going, the music of infinite time and possibilities. Now suddenly it was gone, replaced by nothing, just silence. There you are, one little person sitting in the late summer sun with only a few things left to do. Right? Music dying. And the book of Job seems poised to end on this note, reinforcing the messages of the Akedah, a kind of silent, odd surrender in the face of this mysterium tremendum that is God and the cosmos. But, and you suggested it, this is not actually the end of the book. Okay, And here comes to what my mind is one of the most intriguing features of the book of Job, and that is... Yes, we have time for it. A second ending. Um, some people might refer to the book of Job. No, I might be the first person to do this, but now you, I, hope, I hope to convince you and you'll go out and tell other people. There is this postmodern ending, right? What is postmodernism? Okay, of course you can't define it. It's really, really hard to define. Um, a simple definition would be the absence of formal principles associated with modernism. Does that help? Um, I would say for our purposes, it's the absence of a strict linear reading of a text. And one of the great um, uh, authors who wrote, who adopted a postmodern nonlinear style is John Fowles. Um, in one of his wonderful works, a wonder, among his many wonderful works, one is called The French Lieutenant's Woman, which was made into a movie with Meryl Streep. Um, in this book, he actually presents two different and contradictory endings. The story is about a guy named Charles Smithson, who is a member of the aristocracy. And he is engaged to be married to Ernestina, who is of the same social status as he is. And he is bound by his place in society, by his duty to marry this woman who is the appropriate woman for him, but she's kind of dull. Um, he's resigned to his fate until, wouldn't you just know it, he meets and falls in love with Sarah, who is this wild outcast, and she stirs in him the desire for freedom and something else. Um, and in the first ending of the book, um, The French Lieutenant's Woman, woman, he casts Sarah out of his life. He remains faithful to Ernestina. He suffers for the rest of his life, but he does the right thing. Okay, and then Fowles does this incredible thing, which he says, okay, now let's rewind and let's give that, that ending again. Try this. Charles destroys his reputation. He breaks off his, his engagement to Ernestina, and he has a relationship with the wild outcast Sarah. Loses everything, but he, he follows his heart. And when they asked John Fowles, Mr. Fowles, why did you write a book with two different endings that are contradictory with one another? He said... I wrote and printed two endings to the French lieutenant's woman entirely because from early in the first draft, I was torn between wishing to reward the protagonist, and he admits that it's his own surrogate self, with the woman he loved and wishing to deprive him of her. Okay, he struggles with these things within himself, so he presents a character who is, who is, who is in, in conflicted about it, and he's going to give you an ending that reflects that conflict without resolving it. Right? What he's saying is that the, the matters of human emotion are so complex that you can't just give one ending and say, here we go. This is now, it's all tied up in a nice little bow. Um, in, in art, we would, pre, we would perhaps compare this to a, uh, right, to, to a Picasso painting where you can, get, you can get a profile and a front, frontal view of a, of, a, of a figure at the same time. And it looks like a mess, but you realize when you look close, it was the first, the first course I ever took in, in uh, art history and, uh, you know, next, to a, next to a Renaissance painting and then you have a Picasso and you just love the Renaissance painting until you realize how much more is being conveyed by those different angles in the Picasso, right? You get, you get everything all at once and you can realize, wow, this is really, really complicated. That's the human heart. What I want to suggest here is that the book of Job is saying that matters of, of God's justice in the world 
of theodicy, of how do we hold on to faith when everything around us looks un- to, seems to be unjust, that's no less complicated. And maybe in a book that, that devotes itself entirely to that question, we can't suffice with one answer. Maybe we have to have two. And now we get to ending number two. Okay. And I've got to do it fast. Job, in source number eight, God now appears. We think everything is all sorted out, but now God appears to the friends, and he says, Shak, chara api I'm really angry at you. Ki lo dibartem elai nechona ke'avdi iov. We thought that God was siding with the friends, and instead God turns to the friends now in ending number two and says, actually, I'm angry at you. You're wrong, and Job is right. And now you've got to bring sacrifices, and you have to let Job pray for you. He is going to be your intermediary to me. And then God says again, ki lo dibartem elai nechona ke'avdi iov. You are not correct. He is. And then we have everybody coming and comforting him, and we have this very important word again, l'nachem, but this time not meaning recanting. What does it mean here? Vayinachamu oto al kol hara'a asher hevi Hashem alav. No ambiguity here. God brought the evil, and now Job deserves comfort for that evil. There is an acknowledgement, there's a recognition that he has suffered and that he didn't deserve the suffering. Right? God is now giving him back, and, that, and we, we can not, not, we're not going to talk about what, you know, you lose your family, and God says, well, I'll give you a better one. I mean, really, but, but, but that's the way the book ends, in this very kind of fairy tale way. Um, but what we do get here is the sense that with, even though God is not going to explain um, why things happen the way they happen, right? God still re- remains mysterious at the end. There seems to be an acknowledgement that, that there is injustice. Bad things are going to happen to good people. We won't know why. But here in this story, and you get comfort for that. You deserve comfort. And, and here in this book, it comes after Job has said all the things. And trust me when I tell you this. The book of Job is 42 chapters long. 38 of those chapters are, are dialogues back and forth, flying all over the place. Every word that a person could say in protest is said by Job. And at the end of that, God says, you are the person that is my, still, right? What, what do we have at the end of the story? You are avdi iov, sorry. Tamu. I put that in there. That was just, well, that was my effort at, at a little bit of a literary, perhaps, um, stretching it a little bit, but the last speech that Job gives in source number nine, tamu divrei iov, means, the, the plain sense of that is, his words are at an end. I, I am wondering if there's some wordplay there. Tamu, they're at an end, he is spent, he has said everything that he could possibly say, and yet he still holds on to that status as tam. And, and I think support for that is that he dies just as Abraham did, zaken usiva yamim, old and satisfied, right? In a sense, even more than, jo- than Abraham, it's not on your page here, but he lives to see four generations, whereas with Abraham, he's told, you're going to die, and the fourth generation will come back here, right? Job gets to actually see those four generations play out. Um, okay, in conclusion, what I want to say is this. The second ending of Job, the un- which I believe is actually the subversive sequel, to the Akedea. It takes the, the model, the silent, suffering, submissive servant, a lot of S's there, and, and says, this is the model of Yireh Elohim. What the book of Job does is put that, that, that model up to question and say, if that character will say everything there is to say and challenge God in the most extreme ways, can he still be Tom? Can he still be Yireh Elohim? And I would say that the answer that the book gives you is a yes and a no. The first ending says, well, maybe not. And the second ending, I think, gives a resounding yes. The second ending is very nice for a modern sensibility. We are all philosophers. We demand morality for ourselves from God. We want the world to make sense, and when it doesn't, we're agitated and we demand answers. We want to know, how can God be all-powerful and all-good? How can God let terrible things happen to good people? We look for philosophical constructs that will make sense of this. All of that is supported by ending number two. But the two conflicting endings, I would suggest, suggest this ongoing dialogue, pitting the silent acceptance with the ability of human beings to, to engage in outspoken objection. And I'm going to end with this thought. You might, this might surprise you. You might expect me that if I'm faced with two options and one of them is a subversive sequel, that I would pick that one. I want to say that would be too easy. 
I want to just point instead to the genius of this book that presents these two contradictory, irreconcilable, but equally enduring and relevant responses to unjust human suffering. And all of this brings us back to this day, Tisha B'Av, that encompasses the collective trauma of the Jewish people throughout our, t- our history. And after the build, uh, this buildup of the three weeks in which life's music gradually faded, um, on this day, the music stops completely. And, and as we sit and we read the keynote, um, without the pleasant soundtrack that obscures the stark silences that Kugel spoke of, of, of our pain, we read, we relive, we mourn the horrific variety and sheer number of Khurban experiences that we have absorbed. And I would say that the, the book of Job, in a sense, helps us honor the different responses that, that our people have had when faced with these terrible events. On the one hand, like Job, in ending number two, some, some of us were relentless fighters, resisted and battled both in word and indeed both philosophically and physically. Like Job in ending number one, and like Avraham at the Akedah, others accepted the fate with silent, unwavering faith and submission. Um, And I'll just end with this thought that very soon this traumatic three-week period is going to come to an end. And like every year, the music is going to come back gradually. It's going to come back. Um, And I want to leave you with my hope and prayer that the words of next Shabbat's Haftarah will help us face our silent, tuneless moments, both national and personal, from the past, in the present, and in the future. And I want to just end with taking one moment to recall one of our institution's greatest moments of tragedy and trauma, the loss of our beloved students who had the most brilliant futures ahead of them, awaiting them, Um, and first Ben Blutstein, whose parents have sponsored this day of learning, Um, greatly beloved, greatly missed, Marla Bennett, greatly beloved, greatly missed. To their families and to us all, I wish that we will, the words of the prophet, this Shabbat will resound with all of us, Nachamu, Nachamu, Amin. Thank you again for listening to Nine Days, Nine Podcasts, a production of Produce North America. If you like what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening.